Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Hi, this is Dale Borglum, also known as Ram Dave, on the Healing at the Edge channel of the Be Here Now podcast network. This network exists on your donations, so if you'd like, you can go to the website and make a donation. We'd really appreciate that. Today, I'm going to be joined by my friend Monica Abrahamson, who is in Denmark. Monica came to an online group that I was teaching a while back, and since then we become friends over the distance and thought that it would be lovely to do a few podcasts together. Hi, Monica. Hello. (laughs) So you're in Denmark, I'm in California, and today I would like to talk about mantra. When I was in India with Maharaji, he really encouraged Westerners to use mantra and almost discouraged us from all other kinds of more complicated spiritual practice. When people would try to meditate, he'd usually pull their beards or tickle them or distract them and said that really all is possible by God's name. And he said things like, 
you should keep God in mind every minute. In the Bible, there's a Bible verse that says, pray without ceasing. Uh, so it seems pretty impossible to be down on your knees praying every moment. But is it possible to be in that state every moment of the day where you're feeling some connection with God? There's a wonderful story in India about the god Ganesha. And in India, when there's a big, a big puja, a big ritual, many of the gods are honored. And a long, 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 long time ago, the gods had an argument who would get to go first, who would be the first god to be worshipped. So they decided that they would have a race to determine who was the first god to be worshipped. And the race was going to be three times around the whole universe, and each god would get to pick any mount or steed that he or she wanted. So these gods were picking like big, fast horses or birds or things like that. And Ganesh picked a mouse. And everybody laughed at Ganesh because he's a big elephant and he, he had this little mouse and they thought there's no way that he could win. So it was time for the race. One, two, three, go. Everybody took off, going around the universe. Took a long time. Finally, some of the leaders started coming back to the beginning, and there was Ganesh. And Ganesh said, I won. And they said, well, how could you have won? Because we didn't see you out on the racetrack at all. We didn't see you flying around the universe. He said, well, while you were out there, I took this piece of paper and I wrote Ram on the piece of paper, and I put it down on the ground, and I got on my mouse, and we walked around this piece of paper three times. And since God's name contains the whole universe, I have won. And all the gods had to agree that Ganesh had won. And to this day, he is the first God who is worshipped. So I've done a lot of meditation. I work with people who are dying. But really, when things get difficult in my life or when I wake up in the middle of the night or when... I just feel disconnected. The first thing I go to is God's name. I had the great grace that Maharaji gave me a mantra, but at the same time, he said, all mantras are a guru mantra. Not just a mantra that he gives, but any mantra is really a guru mantra. So, you have any comments before I go on, Monica? I don't want to do this whole monologue and have you just over there in Denmark, not doing anything. You want to say something? <laughs> uh, guru mantra, meaning? A mantra from the guru. That uh, you can go to a book and find a mantra, or you can hear somebody else say a mantra. But when your guru gives you a mantra, mm. that there's that's a guru mantra, and it has supposedly an extra power to it because it co has come directly from a guru. So there's a story... And I forget the names of the people involved, so it kind of ruins the story a bit. But there was a very famous guru. Uh, it might have been Shankaracharya or somebody. I'm not even sure. And there was this young, poor boy who wanted to get a guru mantra. So he came up to Shankaracharya and said, please give me a mantra. And he said, no, no, no. Who are you? I'm not going to give you a mantra. So the boy realized that every day this great guru would go from his house on a certain route down to the banks of the Ganges River. 
before the sun came up. So what the boy did was he hid on the steps so that when Shankaracharya was going down to the river, he actually stepped on the boy. And as he stepped on the boy, uh, accidentally, he said his mantra. He said God's name. Uh, and the boy took that as an initiation. <laughs> <laughs> Smart move. And he then, he then became a famous teacher in his own right. Does anyone find, does anyone find their own mantra? Or does ever a mantra come to people, I don't know, from within? Or? There are certainly many stories of people uh, receiving a mantra in a dream. Or I remember once I was working with a woman who was dying. And she said, give me a mantra. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't, I'm not really somebody who gives a lot of mantras. And she said, well, you know, I would really like a mantra. So I gave her a mantra and I came back a few days later and she said, you know, that mantra you gave me, it was really nice. But I was, as I was saying it after a few hours, I realized that that wasn't my mantra. There was this other mantra that appeared all by itself. And that's the one I've been using. And I said, that's fantastic. Beautiful. So. Once again, that, that thing that Maharaji said, that, that all mantras are the guru mantra, because uh, what is the guru? The guru is everything. The guru isn't just Maharaji or some person, man, woman off in India or Tibet or somewhere like that. That uh, the guru, the beloved can only be everything. And if you get the mantra out of a book, if you get the mantra out of uh, your dream, it really only is dependent on how much faith you have in the mantra, that you, you believe what they say, that, that God, mantra are the same thing, that the name of God and God are one. In the Bible, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, something like that. So that really when you say Ram, there is no difference between that sound and God itself, that it's all God. And somehow going into that, that sound takes you into God. So that the Buddha said that you are the product of all of your thoughts, that who you are now is the product of everything you've done and, and thought and said up until this point in your life and maybe other lives. So that if a lot of your thoughts are this thought of God, then that creates a certain quality in your being. Whereas if you have a lot of thoughts of jealousy and anger and greed and uh, who's winning the soccer match or whatever, then that's where your mind is going all the time then that brings a different quality to your being. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. So uh, I have created a healing paradigm I've talked about in some of the other podcasts. Uh, it really comes from the stages of Buddhist yanas, the, the stages of Buddhist development. Uh, and I call these stages invocation, and then, in this case, devotion, and then empowerment, and then wholeness. And a mantra 
can be said or utilized from these different levels of uh, practice. So the first level is invocation. Invocation means you've got some idea, you've got some faith that, that God is there, but you're not feeling it. You're kind of saying, I'm saying your name, but I don't really quite feel it yet. I'd really like you to respond. And whether we're saying a mantra or singing a mantra, say you're singing Kirtan with Krishnadas or Jai Utal or somebody else, you, you can sing and it can be kind of automatic. You can be saying and you're reaching out, you're hoping for union with God. But eventually, this invocation then turns into devotion, that you begin to form a relationship. So that in the beginning, I'm saying Ram, 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 Ram hoping that Ram's going to show up. And when I then do this enough, then through grace or through blessing, then the object of the mantra, the deity of the mantra, will begin to awaken in your heart. And the mantra goes from the head into the heart. And in fact, in Orthodox Christianity, Greek and Russian Orthodox Christianity, they talk about the process of letting the mind drop into the heart so that the mind is still there. The mind has thoughts. We're not using mantra to suppress or repress. That The mind is there. The body's still there. But uh, through it all, the, the name continues. The name continues. And eventually, uh, the mind begins to be colored by the quality of the heart. We, we drop into the heart. Recent studies in neuroscience talk about the following thing, that our, our neurology has evolved from long, long ago in prehistory at a time when we were really focused on the negative, that one bad experience could ruin your day. You'd be out on the savanna and you'd be eaten by a tiger. So you really had to pay attention to the danger. You had to pay attention to what might be difficult and challenging. Uh, and you didn't pay so much attention to the positive things because you had to be really alert in that way. So that even though there are no tigers for most of us, but there are thousands of small stressors, people tend to grab onto the negative things. And that goes into the more permanent part of our neurology and the positive things kind of slide through. So the, one of the, one of the uh, sayings is like negative things are like Velcro to the, the brain and positive things are like Teflon. Do you know what Teflon and Velcro are? Yep. They have those, those things, same things over in Europe. So that suppose you go on a vacation. You have 10,000 positive experiences and somebody steals your purse your wallet. You come back and somebody says, how was your vacation? You say, it was really pretty good, but I lost my wallet. We, we tend to grab onto the, onto the negative. But what they found in recent neuroscience is that if you have a positive experience and you emphasize it and extend it for just 15 seconds, it will go into the permanent part of the neurology and will begin to then balance out all these negative stressors that we're holding on to. And in that 
in that sense, saying a mantra and having the positive experience of thinking about God or remembering God or being in love with God or realizing our unity with God eventually begins to balance out all those stressful things that are happening in our life. It begins to create new neural pathways in the brain. So the first thing is this quality of paying attention to thoughts as they're coming up and keep coming back to the name, the mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum, or Ram Ram Ram, or whatever it might be, and reaching out, really bringing some sense of uh, dedication and, and yearning, really admitting your yearning, feeling the place where you feel separate. And maybe that only takes two or three mantras. Maybe it takes two or three years. It depends on how stubborn we are, how, mm. how much we're caught in all this feeling of separateness. But eventually, mantra begins to become a love affair. You, you read poems by Rumi or by Hafiz, how they talk about becoming intoxicated, the, the wine of God's love. And whether that's through singing or through contemplation, or in this case, we're talking about mantra or even prayer, that eventually then saying the mantra turns into this love affair that, uh, in fact, maybe even you can begin to feel how the mantra moves from down in the lower chakras during the invocation stage up to the heart. And there's, there's an opening of the heart, often a painful quality. There's, of course, this wonderful picture of Hanuman, uh, one of the main, how can I say it? One of the, Hanuman is only depicted in a few different stances in the, the statues that you see in India, the Murtis. And one of them, he's ripping his heart open. He's just, he pulled his heart open and then in there was Ram and Sitra. Ram and Sita. And the story is that after Ram and Sita were reunited, there was a big, huge party. And uh, Hanuman wasn't at the party. They thought he should be there because he was so instrumental in getting Ram and Sita back together again. So people went looking for Hanuman and he was off in some orchard playing in the trees. And they said, Hanuman, why aren't you at the party with Ram and Sita? And he put his hands into his chest and pulled his chest open. And there in the middle of his chest was Ram and Sita. He said, I don't need to go to the party. They're always in my heart. So that, that uh, can, we, can we pull open our chest in that way? And can the mantra be that which is pulling open the chest? Mm. So that's, that's the second level of mantra. And you, you're having this love affair with, with that, with God, and you then begin to see God in the world. The third stage is what I call empowerment, where as you're saying Ram's name, you begin to realize that you and Ram are not separate. Uh, Hanuman was a devotee of Ram. He said Ram's name. And somebody asked him about his relationship with Ram. And he said, well, when I forget who I am, I love Ram. But when I remember who I am, I remember that I am one with God. I know that I am one with Ram. So that as the mantra deepens, even beyond this dualistic, I'm in love with Ram, it's I am Ram. That there is a sense of empowerment, that we are 
that which we invoked. We are that divine quality that is the essential nature of the mantra itself. And finally, as it deepens even more, uh, the mantra says itself, we're not saying anything, there's nobody to say it, it's all Ram. I'm Ram, you're Ram, cancer is Ram, death is Ram, beauty is Ram, and we're uh, floating in that vast spaciousness that is the love of Ram or of God or whatever name one might choose. So let me look at my piece of paper here. I remember when we were in India, Ramdas had this saying that I thought was really great, where he said, faith, comma, no fear, fear, comma, no faith. If you have faith, there's no fear, and if you have fear, there's no faith. Is it possible to go into the mantra deeply enough that it creates this faith? Uh, when you are dying, you might be in a car that's spinning out of control. And it's the person you love the most in the world is right there next to you screaming in terror. So that uh, how, how deeply has your practice, whether it's mantra or something else, penetrated into your heart, into your being, into your cells? When Gandhi was assassinated, he was uh, walking out in this big crowd of people to give a political speech and somebody unexpectedly stepped out of the crowd, walked right up to him and, and shot him two or three times right in the chest. And as he was falling over, he said, Ram, Ram, Ram. He was saying God's name as he was dying. And the reason he could do that was he was saying Ram, Ram, Ram all the time. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't saying it only because he was shot, but he was saying it when he was eating his breakfast. He was saying it when he was going to bed at night. He was saying it so that can we, can we use mantra as a way of letting God's love for us and our love for God and our identity with God and with all begin to permeate, to color our very existence, the way we breathe? But do you think it scares people, though? Like it, it would take up too much space, like the fear of not be, knowing anything that... Um, yeah. What do you think? Um, I, for me, it has been like that. that I uh, would, yeah. I would say for sure that it scares people. That whether it's meditation or prayer or psychedelic drugs or mantra or falling in love with another person, anything that begins to threaten the primacy of the ego uh, is frightening. It's really what we're talking about fundamentally here is fear of death. So that my experience is that mantra is almost like this very gradual, loving, wearing away of that fear that you're talking about. It's Maybe you could think of identification with ego as this, this solid rock. And the mantra, the love of the mantra is this... Uh, water that's just slowly smoothing and eventually wearing away the fear that is the basis of the ego structure. So uh, in that sense, every time we're saying a mantra and every time we're not saying a mantra is preparation for dying. In a very yeah. positive way, not in a, not really in a morbid way, of course. Yeah. 
Because it, se- it seems like when people go too deep into something, uh, spirituality, or when they get in touch with this God, that it becomes too much. Almost like, and almost maybe that we cannot handle it. Like, that we, om- that we need the separation sometimes. Because if I, say if I have a guru that I am completely in love with, and the guru tries to tell me all over and over that I am that guru, I am that as well, I think maybe it's, it can be a bit difficult to, to embrace that when you love something so much and then suddenly you have to say that, oh, I am that, I am that beautiful, I am that great or I am that especially here I don't know maybe not in the states but here in Scandinavia it's like you shouldn't think that you are someone you know you should calm down you should not think that you are all that is or you know good or God or love yeah maybe culturally it's a little bit easier here in California which of course is the center of the universe (laughs) (laughs) but but you said something you used the word suddenly and i don't think it's a sudden thing i think it can be a very gradual thing that yes that fear arises again and again and again and i I remember a long time ago ramdas and i and stephen levine taught a workshop and a woman from rural canada came to the workshop and she went back home living with her parents she was young woman and she wrote us a letter saying that uh, she came back to her parents who were fundamentalist Christian, which maybe is not quite Scandinavian, but there is some kind of rigidity to it. And she said her parents were very, very upset by some of these ideas that she had gotten at the workshop. But what she said that was so interesting was she said, my parents hate me when I'm a Buddhist and they love me when I'm a Buddha. So, uh, even though you're living in Scandinavia, you don't have to advertise you're saying a mantra. You don't have to go around with your beads, your beads, you know, saying, uh, Ram, 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 you're walking down the street looking all, all holy or no. something like that. Yeah. This, can be, this can be going on inside. And people, people will be really attracted to the love that you are. That's what... Uh, you can say clever things, you can do nice things, but really it's the way you are, the way you make people feel that what is the lasting impression. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's it's that the people outside physically stopping us, but I think it's, you know, ourselves on the inside that when we get so close to something that beautiful and great that it can be a bit scary and like maybe worthiness plays a part in it like we don't think that we're worthy of all that love and i don't know yeah i'm not sure that that's unique to scandinavia i mean i'm a lot older than you and i grew up in the 1950s and i had to undo a lot of conditioning about be this way and think this way and and make a successful career and 
what you what you do and how much money you make determines how valuable and useful you are in the world. And uh, so that there is this tension between on one side, we are the essence of the mantra. We are that love. That That is our nature. But on the other side, the ego structure, which is also culture, culturally... Uh, there's, there's not only our individual ego, but there's a collective cultural ego that we're living in that is in really direct conflict to this dissolving, letting go, trusting love. And a lot of the spiritual path is working with this tension between uh, the fear that the ego feels when it is being ignored or supplanted by love and trusting the love itself. And it's going back and forth thousands upon thousands of times and just gradually directly experiencing the quality of suffering that we're feeling when we're completely identified with the ego and what it feels like when we're letting go into spaciousness. So that that you say the... So in, in Tibetan Buddhism, before you even get to the point where they let you do deity practice, where they give you the mantras that you are this deity or that deity, and the Lama bops you on the head and says, now you can imagine your Chinrezi or Green Tower or something like that. You're supposed to do 100,000 full prostrations with your head to the uh, floor and you're flat out like that, and a million mantras to begin to open the heart so that uh, maybe a lot of people in the West don't have time for 100,000 full prostrations. <laughs> but, but, but maybe the fear that arises in terms of working with your job and your family and those different things are the equivalent of these prostrations. You know, that we begin to see that, that life itself is knocking us down and prostrating mm. us. And can we use the this feeling of again and again uh, being knocked to the ground. Sri Aurobindo has this wonderful metaphor. He said his spiritual path was like he's walking down a road and God knocks him over into a mud puddle and he gets up and he's shaking his fist at God saying, why did you do that to me? Why did you do that? Who do you think you are? And he walked a little further down the road and God knocked him over again. And he got up and he he was upset, but he didn't shake his fist so much. And he walked further down the road and God knocked him over and he just cleaned himself off and kept going. So that again and again, we'll feel that fear. We'll get caught in the fear. But how seriously, how personally do we have to take it? Can we, is our identity in the fear, is it in... in uh, personality structure, or is it in our true being? So there's this gradual, occasionally it's sudden, and there, there are some people that have this sudden awakening. Uh, and some of the, the more famous teachers around are people that had a nervous breakdown or a, a really dramatic spiritual awakening in a very sudden way. But for many people, it's a much more gradual process where there's this neurotic structure and there's love of God, and that 
that in the beginning we're really neurotic and there's not much love. And the, the more we practice, the more we say the mantra, the more we uh, make love with the guru, then we begin to trust that. So when you go to bed at night and you put your head down on the pillow, is it a pillow or is it God's lap? Uh, can, you, can you just rest in Maharaji's embrace or in God's love? Uh, and in fact, can that be right now? Uh, you're in Denmark, I'm in Fairfax, California. Uh, is there any... Is there any God out there that is more immediate than you and I being together or all the people that might be viewing this podcast or something? So that it's, in fact, this whole notion of there's the invocation stage and the devotion stage, it's very easy to get caught in these initial stages of feeling that you've got to keep pounding out the mantra. A friend of mine, uh, I won't mention his name, but he's a very stubborn guy. And he wore out several mantras, just worked them down to nothing because <laughs> he was so stubborn. And maybe, I mean, why do we have to say God's name more than once? If you really said it with mm. your complete wide open heart and split open mind, then mm. it would be enough. But then after, after it opened like that, maybe that's all you'd want to do anyway. Mm. I think we try it's too hard. Like there's, yeah. there's, there's so much pressure, like not, not only from the like traditional world and normal society, but like also in the spiritual communities that, you know, you have to be spiritual in the right way. You have to say the right words. You have to do the right thing. And it's like, there's too much pressure, and I think we got it already. I think we all just, we got it, because we are it. So the whole trying is just, we're just, it seems like we're trying to convince ourselves that we're not God or love, and that we have to prove it over and over, and it's just like, yeah, exhausting. <laughs> Well, who's the self we have to convince is the question. I don't know. There's a beauty of it because it seems like when you talk about the stages that what happens is, for me, it sounds like the, the mind is surrendering. Like we're not trying to kill the ego and get rid of the mind, but it just surrenders into something more natural or something, um, yeah, because it seems like when the surrender happens, then the, the love just shines through with all the people who have, you know, anxiety or, um, you know, hit a wall and they suddenly awaken. It seems like it's because they surrender. Or no? Uh, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, but the question is, how do you surrender? I mean... Uh... Or can you can you surrender without exhausting yourself? It's my question, because it's I think it's it's tiring to see that we have to go through so much work work and pain and sickness to surrender. 
or is that, do we have to do that? We have to do it if we think we have to do it. And I mean, I think there's a, a kind of a dirty secret here that the effort needed in practice is only so that you realize you don't need to have any effort. That yeah. if, you, if you haven't tried your hardest, you'll always think, if I tried more, I would have gotten there. Mm -hmm. But if you try your hardest and you're still this dualistic person who's struggling, maybe then you can begin to relax and open and receive. So that even in the way we've been talking about mantra, I've been saying, I'm a guy and I've been presenting this in kind of this male, uh, this kind of, how can I say it? This kind of, you're going to do it. There's the, you, you do the invocation stage and then you do the devotion stage. But really there's another way of looking at this, which is much more about receiving, much more a feminine process of, as you're invoking, uh, can you receive God's love? When you get to this devotion place, instead of I'm loving God, equally, God is pouring love into you. And right now in this moment, there is an ocean of love that's available. Let me tell you one of my favorite Maharaji stories. Yes. Uh, I was, it was very early on after I'd met him, and a friend of mine, Mohan, and I were with Maharaji, and a number of Indian devotees were there too, uh, just a few of us. And Maharaji turned to us, the two of us, the two Westerners, and said, how much do you guys pay for milk in America? And Mohan did some quick calculation in his mind and said, so many rupees per kilo. And Maharaji turned to the Indians and he said, can you believe it? They pay so much money for milk in America. And he went on and on and on. He talked for 10 minutes about the price of milk. And I was thinking, you know, what is he talking about here? I really, I want to talk about God. I want to get enlightened. Why are we talking about the price of milk? And then he came back to us again and said, how much was it again? And Mohan <laughs> told him the answer again. And again, he went on and on and on. And I thought, you know, maybe I've made a mistake. Who is this guy? Why are we talking about the price of milk? And all of a sudden, I had this explosion in my mind, in my heart mind, that I knew came from him. It's hard to explain how I knew this, but I knew it with complete certainty. And the message I got was, we can talk about important things. We can talk about God. But that just makes the mind busy. If we're talking about the price of milk, it allows the mind to relax, and there is an ocean of love that is available now and in every moment. And at that point, I went into bliss, this profound bliss. I could barely think. And I was in this bliss state for the rest of the day and realized that all this part in me that I just graduated from, I just got my PhD and I was a mathematician and I needed to get somewhere that really we could just talk about the price of milk and, and just <laughs> float in the ocean of love. And that was much more interesting than, and much, not interesting, but much more alive than the interesting stuff, if you will. Yeah, it can get very heavy. If you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. 
So one quality I really love about mantra is that it enables me to begin to see people as a reflection of God's face. In other words, if I'm going down the if I'm going down the sidewalk or the street or whatever, and I'm seeing all these different people, uh, and I'm just trying to be mindful and I'm aware of what I think about this person and what's going on in my body and my mind, that's interesting. But if I'm saying God's name and I can see that this person and that person, each person is in some way uh, God, even maybe it's not a part of God I want to be friends with, but it's like it it allows me to open and not be struggling with uh, the great variety of the human condition. Yeah. I had an experience once with, um, I was very caught up in this whole, oh, seeing God and everything. It was a new thing for me. And I was just out and just enjoying, you know, the, the nature, trees and everything. And it was just adoring. Everything I came across, I was just adoring it. And after a while, I realized as I stood there, because uh, that was kind of overwhelming in itself. But then, um, then I realized, like, if I am looking at this and adoring this, and we're the same energy and we're the same thing, then what if these creatures and these plants or whatever is out there looking at me with the same um, love? And I got so shy. I, feel, I felt so embarrassed because it was almost too much. I felt like I was, you know, just adored. And um, it's weird because it was from the nature, you know. It's... I, I know it's more difficult with people, but, but, um, yeah, it would such a beautiful feeling. And it's easier now to also see that in things I don't want to be friend with or people I don't, you know, think that I like so much, but still look at them as God, look at them as love and then allowing them to look at me as love and God. Uh, in the same way, but um, yeah, so it gets more interesting or feels very alive, though. Mayor Baba said, "Love is contagious. Those who haven't got it catch it from those who do." Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we, we can read about love, we can talk about love, but we really get it from being around people who are love, which is of course, the point of being around the guru, but it could also come from the love of animals and plants and nature itself, mm. that it, it is a loving universe. Yeah. So maybe this is a good point to bring this to a close. I really enjoyed doing this with you. It's so much easier than me just trying to be clever on my own <laughs> and <laughs> I'm going to push the button here and thank everybody for joining us and I hope you come back soon. <laughs>